Well, I am so glad that you are here today. My name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor uh, here at Antioch Community Church, Dallas. And just want to welcome you to church, whether you've been here a long time or today is your first Sunday. Man, so excited that you're here. We've been learning about how Jesus and the way of Jesus informs and influences the work of our hands, our, our nine to fives, or your seven to seven, or seven to three, or whatever the case may be. How knowing him and, and his ways, practicing his ways, influences the way in which we work. And this is such an important topic to cover because we've seen that as Americans, we spend 90,000 hours of our lives at work. 90,000 hours. And that doesn't count the school that you go to in preparation for the job that you want to do. So we spend a significant amount of time at work. And yet we've seen for 90% of Americans, we would say that we don't feel passion or purpose related to our jobs. So a huge portion of our lives feel very little meaning, very little purpose, very little passion, just kind of, oh, work is a burden for many of us. And so we've been learning that Jesus brings hope and inspiration into our work because he teaches us that we matter to God. You matter to God. And because you matter to God, God has given you work that matters. You have a calling. You have a calling to cultivate the, the natural and human resources of our planet to bring about flourishing. And in so doing, we glorify God. You have a calling on your life to cultivate. You matter to God. And God has given you work that matters. And last week we learned that our gifts and our work, contrary to popular opinion, is not primarily about making us great, making us all that we can be, making our lives great, but it's primarily our, our gifts and our work are primarily about making others great. That's not primarily about me and mine, but it's about him and them. And when we'll adopt that mindset, when we'll follow Jesus in that way, what it does is it opens us up to the way of life. And work becomes a place where we can experience life because we understand it as a part of our purpose and our calling. And so I gave you four questions last week to help reframe the way that we think about work. If you'll put those up on the screen, please. I heard so much feedback on this. If you've been like, this is so helpful and so insightful and just helps me think and talk about my work in an entirely new way. So I wanna have a friend, Alex DeBrot, come on up to the, the stage. The, the platform, whatever this is. And uh, each week we've been having testimonies from within the church of people who, who love Jesus and out of their faith in Jesus are, are working and trying to let the way of Jesus influence the way that they work. None of them are perfect. None of them have it all together, but they do have something to offer. And this is not meant to be a template of this is the way you need to do it. It's meant to be a source of inspiration to be like, oh, maybe that could apply to my job or that could apply to where I work. Maybe God will spark an idea in you as you hear these stories. So last week we heard from an entrepreneur. Today we're gonna hear from a college professor, Dr. Alex DeBrat. So Alex, why don't using the four questions, why don't you tell us what you do? First, I gotta say, A, loving the sermon series, right? So freaking good to awesome. hear Thank like you. How, 
how are most of our lives where we spend, how can we best leverage that for the kingdom? Mm. And then also, I love your color, your color combo today. Oh, yeah. My <laughs> wife told me after the first service, she was like, did you know you and Zach are matching? And I was Dude. like, of course, of course. If only I had um, a lip ring and a ponytail, <laughs> then it would hey, just be, you know, my life would be grass complete. is greener. I'm like, you look awesome with the, with the head, with the, with the shiny head. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so to your question, so I'm, uh, I serve college students at SMU. I get to specifically in, in the bio department, so I help train them to become future healthcare professionals, future researchers, and yeah. Cool. So why do you do that? So the, the main reason what I am envisioned for is really being able to, adv- I, I want to do two things with whatever it is that I fill my time with. I want to be able to advance the kingdom of God and bless. And I think the main way to do that is by blessing others. And so really that's the main reason. And mm. um, I, I shared last time, I I would be happy doing anything else, honestly. Mm. I mean, working at Starbucks, I love coffee. So actually it's kind of a selfish one, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, whatever it is, whatever it is, I think as long as I could serve God and perform a common good, which truly I think every job is performing a necessary mm. good, right? Yeah. Um, it's Every job is is necessary for the whole thing, just like Paul's um, description of the church. It's true in society. So mm. so really, it's specifically with teaching, it's like with being a college professor, it was just how do I do that with the skill set that I have and like testing it out, trying it out, pursuing it, and here I am. Cool. Yeah. So for most people, well, I say a lot of Christians, I guess, would look at science as an intimidating field to go into, or maybe there's a conflict between our faith and science, and, and you, rather than shying back from that, have run headfirst into it. So why don't you let us into, what has that been like for you as a follower of Jesus to go into a field that you know, has a reputation for being hard on people of faith? Yeah, yeah. So it's real. It is really interesting. Um, just to give some context to what I'm doing. So I didn't grow up as a believer. Um, I just my dad was an engineer, so it was very much a uh, science household, agnostic for the most part, and didn't really ever talk about how Jesus matters or who Jesus was. Um, Although if they were here in the audience, I do have to grant that there was a time where we, they started reading Bible stories to us. So I will say like they, they, you know, but it just wasn't, wasn't their thing. And I came to know Jesus in high school. I'm from Peru. So I came to college here in the U.S. And that was really kind of the first time that I realized, oh, there's a conflict between, or the cultural narrative is that science and faith are at odds and you have to choose one and you can't serve two masters kind of deal, you know? And um, as someone who had really grown up with a science, more a scientific background, pursuing science, I went to undergrad for bio. I, and now a lover and follower of Jesus, I was like, oh, interesting. I didn't even realize that there was a conflict. So I started to like kind of worry about it. But but honestly, at the end of the day, what helped me was um, uh, Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine of Hippo, and he's been re-quoted many times since. He, back in 400 AD, I guess, really coined the idea that there's two, God has two books. He's the author of two books, the book of scripture and the book of nature. Mm. And as such, both are, the, the really the purpose of both is to, is to really just express God and mm. that we may see him in mm. both ways. And so if he's the author, though, then there must be, they must be able to work together. Mm. We don't have to sacrifice one for the other. So mm. I was like, okay, 
all right, I'm going to run with that. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. And I have my own way of doing it, of holding both together. But I think um, for sure it's not one against the other. And I've ran with it and embraced it. And I am a little bit of a black sheep in different places. But um, I do love to, to be able to say, hey, it's not that big of a deal. You know, let's, it's all about Jesus and a passion for Jesus, his purposes on the earth. Amen. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, so uh, give us some advice. What, what advice would you give to us uh, on how we could think about our faith and our work intersecting? Because not everyone here is a scientist, but we all have different things we're going to go into this week. And what advice or encouragement would you have? Yeah, so my, my main thing isn't science-related, but um, one of the things I had to decide as I was finishing the PhD and the postdoc research was, do I go, there are two routes you can take in academia, and do I go the route that is the research route that is awesome and um, pays a lot more money but requires a lot more of your time? So we're talking 80 plus hours a week sometimes, not always, but given my personality, that's probably what it would be. <laughs> um, and, or go the other route, that's less money, lecture, so I teach primarily but will allow me to really serve my family and be mm. present. And I think ultimately one of the, it's cool how God has made work a relational thing. Mm. And so like I work to help provide and support my family, but at the same time I am working to meet a common good in society. You know, sometimes it's more relational than others, but it's always rooted in society. Like mm -hmm. every job has a relational component in mm -hmm. that sense. And so, um, so really, it was important for me to not lose sight that primarily I'm serving my family, mm. you know, and whatever career, whatever job all of us are doing, that it can't be at the expense of family mm. because that is our main ministry. That's our main role. That's our main vocation. Mm. And then no matter what job, we'll still get to participate and find purpose like we're sharing, you know, and find a way in which our gifts can be used to bless others and advance the kingdom. Mm. So just don't lose sight of... I guess, family and serving family. Mm. That's like the big one, right? Mm. So, yeah. That's awesome. Well, we're so proud of you Thanks, and man. love you. Thanks for sharing with us today. And Thanks, uh, Just love your family. <clears throat> it's inspiring. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 19 today. Luke chapter 19, verse one through 10. I encourage you to open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, they are in the underneath the seat in front of you. You can pull that out. I just encourage everyone to open up God's Word and to look at it for yourself because it has power and life. And when we take it in ourselves, we take it in a deeper level. Uh, we're going to read a story today that speaks to an incredibly important topic when it comes to our work. This is such an important topic that if you're a note taker, I want to make sure that you get the heading for this. If you're not a note taker, maybe you take notes today because I think this is so important for us all to be reminded of or to know, and that is this. You are more than your job. You are more than your nine to five. You are more than the work of your hands. You are more than your job. And we're going to see that in action today, and we're going to see why understanding this and living this out is so important for all of us. Luke 19, starting in verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Jericho was a city in Jesus' day. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He passes through Jericho. While he is there, there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector 
and was wealthy. Now, if your name is Zach, like me, you uh, have been called Zacchaeus at different points in your life by many different people. Most of the Zachs I know are actually Zachary, not Zacchaeus, but just, this is a familiar name. If you grew up in church, we'd sing the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree just to see what he could see, right? Famous song, this is that story, this is that Zacchaeus, but we're going to learn some information about him uh, that's important, that he was a tax collector, a chief tax collector, and was wealthy. Verse 3, uh, his famous line, he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus, since Jesus was coming that way. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down, Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed Jesus in gladly. All the people who saw this uh, began to mutter, oh, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay that back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham For the Son of Man, that's Jesus speaking about himself, came to seek and to save the lost. I love this story. And what I want to show you uh, is how this story relates to our work. Because as you read this, you see it has direct implications and applications to Zacchaeus' everyday job as a tax collector. What I want to point out to you as we get started is to look in verse 2 where it speaks about Zacchaeus and it says that he was a chief tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. This is one of the identifiers that were given of Zacchaeus. One of the descriptors that were given about him was the work that he did. It doesn't say that he worked as a chief tax collector. It says he was a chief tax collector. That's because being a tax collector in his day was more than just a job that you showed up to do. It was an identity that you became. Tax collectors were hated. Tax collectors were looked down on because you remember uh, the Jews are being occupied by Rome, the Roman overlords. They're not happy about it. The Jews are not happy about it. And tax collectors were Jewish people who worked for the Roman Empire. They were Jewish people who worked for the enemies of their own people. And they worked and supported the empire by taking taxes. And not only that, not only were they viewed as traitors, but they were also known for being crooked. That they wouldn't just take the right amount of taxes, but they would add more in so that they could pocket some. And that's how Zacchaeus became very wealthy. And he's not just a tax collector, he's the chief. So everywhere he went, people would know him as, oh, there goes that tax collector, That's how he would be known in the community. You would not separate Zacchaeus from the work that he does. It was his identity. And we see throughout the Gospel of Luke, whenever we encounter tax collectors, people refer to them by their job. It's oftentimes the only descriptor we're giving. So-and-so was a tax collector. And I find that we so often do the same thing in our world. It's not just Zacchaeus long ago that that had his identity wrapped up in his job. 
You think about it. In our own time, if you ask a small child, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's a verb of essence. No child ever answers, well, I want to be kind. I want to be generous. I want to be integrous. I want to, you know, walk in joy. No. What do you say? Well, I want to be a policeman. Or I want to be an astronaut. Or I want to be a WNBA basketball player. Or I want to be fill in the blank. That's what's said. I want to be a dinosaur. You know, it just depends on the kids that you ask. They say, this is, I want to be what I do. And as we get older, we carry the same thing forward, right? Yes, what do you do? Well, I am a teacher. What do you do? I am in sales. What do you do? I am an engineer. What do you do? Well, I am retired. What do you do? I am a stay-at-home parent. We answer the question when we're asked who we are or we ask what we do. We answer with the work that we do, but we describe it as who we are. Right? So when we read about Zacchaeus, not some just short guy long ago whose identity was wrapped up in his work, this is something that we all can do and can think and can be immersed in. And when we think this way, uh, we, we think, we, we kind of get wrapped up in the idea that the validation for your life and mine, the significance for your life and mine is based on our performance at work. If you're a teacher, you are shooting for some sort of test at the end of the year that you're hoping your students pass, and if they do, you consider yourself a success. If you're in sales, you've got sales quotas, and if you can reach this benchmark, then you kind of get this title at your company, you get these perks, and this is something that you want to do, and if you can get that, man, I'm, I'm a successful person. Um, if you are, uh, let's, let's pick another job. If you are an engineer, right, maybe you have um, a, like a quarterly evaluation or an annual review that you're trying to achieve the right amount. And if you get, a, get good marks on your annual review, you get a bonus and you feel great. And you're like, man, I'm successful at work, right? We base our value and our success so often off the jobs that we do. We base where we live based on the jobs that we do. We base uh, what we wear, the way we talk, the hours that we keep. We, we look at our jobs as our provider, the thing that gives us the money that we need to live. Right? And in so doing, we just kind of wrap ourselves up and immerse ourselves up in our job is our identity. Zacchaeus, his job was his identity. And when you think about it, when you think about the thing that gives you worth, the thing that provides for you, the thing that guides you, the thing that you evaluate your life and your significance off of, we we might uh, be like, that is a God in your life. It's very easy for our work to become our God. It's very easy for our work to become, in a sense, our religion. It's the thing that gives us meaning. It's the thing that provides for us. It's the thing that shapes us. It's the thing that guides our relationships. It determines our outlook on life. We're very easily, when our work is our identity, our work becomes our God. And I realize for for all of us, this isn't just something that's kind of at at a head level, but I realize this week you are going to marinate all week long in a school or work environment 
that reinforces these messages. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's unintentional. Sometimes people are doing it intentionally. Sometimes it's unintentional, but all of it says your worth is tied to what you do. Your significance is tied to how you perform. Your identity is your job. All right, so when we read Zacchaeus, man, we're, we're right there. I want to show you a graphic uh, from a recent business conference that was for business people about being successful at work that I think uh, incorporates this idea that so often we believe in, in our society, in our generation. If you could pull that graphic up. This is a gentleman talking about how to be successful at business how to see your company do well. And this is what he said, your goals. You're trying to turn your customers into fanatics. You're trying to turn your products into people's obsessions. You're trying to turn your employees into ambassadors. They scratch that out, evangelists. You're trying to turn your brand or your company or your team or whatever into a religion. That's how we're encouraged so often to think about our jobs. Sometimes it's this blatant, sometimes it's underneath the surface, but it's the environment that you and I sit in and stew in and marinate in all week long. This was the environment that Zacchaeus lived in. He was known by the work of his hands. And this way of living is so toxic to our lives. This way of living where our work is our God, our work is our identity, our work is our, our just, this is a thing that makes me, it's so toxic and so corrosive to your heart and to your soul and to who you are. And I want to explain why. Because if you live that way and you fail, you, your, your, your kids don't pass the test at the level that you'd hope. You don't meet the sales quota. Your business doesn't grow to the level that you wish it was at. You get, a, you get a bad report on your annual review. All those things. If you fail, right, you're going to consider your life a failure. You're going to consider your worth zero. You're going to consider your significance bottom of the barrel, right? That's what we do. If we evaluate and live as our identity is our work, if we fail, we're crushed. And I hate to break it to you, I was um, at the library recently with my kids and I overheard another parent encouraging their young child saying, hey, you can be anything you want to be if you set your mind to it. And I understand the sentiment behind it, but it's not true. And it's setting people up for failure. I wanted to be Michael Jordan. The only thing I got was a bald head like Michael Jordan. That's it. No matter how many times I've visualized it, no matter how many positive affirmation books, no matter how many basketball camps, I could grow to be the best I could be. But that was not in the cards for me. I'm not a 6'6 man with an incredible vertical jump. I'm not, right? So often that, that we don't realize this and we don't talk about this, but, but guys, we're going to fail at a lot of things in life. There are gonna be a lot of things that honestly, you can't do. No matter how hard you try, and I wanna say this to you in love so you don't go into life with unrealistic expectations. There are going to be things that you fail at. No one can do everything, no matter how hard you want to believe that. So if we build our identity on our work and we end up failing, then you're crushed. 
And that's no way to live. Now, you may be like, well, Zach, yeah, that's for all the people that are going to fail. I'm, I'm going to succeed. So I, I do well in school. I got most likely to, you know, win this or be that. I do well in my job. I get good on my performance reviews. My kids always pass their tests. Listen, building your life on success is equally as toxic. It's just equally as toxic. And here's why. I met with a mentor figure of mine a year or two ago. And I was just talking to him about life and, and things I was going through. And he uh, had had a very uh, influential business career. Uh, by worldly standards, he'd done very well for himself in the area of business, grown a company, exited the company, uh, had done well financially. And he said, Zach, you know, the, uh, you know what's hard about all this? As he said, I, I, by all standards, I did really well financially at my job. I, like most people would be like, man, I wish I could make that much money. He said, you want to know the honest truth of it is, I look at what I did and what goes through my mind is not, hey, you did a great job. It's like, oh, why weren't you as good as that person? You made seven figures. Why didn't you make eight figures? Right? It's this unending loop of, well, maybe that next thing out there would be my thing. If I could just measure up a little bit more. And so you're like, man, you see a success metric, and you're like, if I could just get to right here, then I would be made. And you get to right there, and you realize that it's hollow. He was like, Zach, it's, it's hollow. It's a moving standard that never satisfies. And in the rare event, you're the 1% of all people that, man, you just hit every, every mark, then this is what you think. You think, man, if everyone could just be like me. Everyone could just have the work ethic I have. If everyone could just have the personality I have. If everyone could just kind of do, I don't even really understand you people that struggle because, you know, uh, look at me, right? You start to think that way. And when you think that way, you become a prideful jerk that no one wants to be like or be around, right? So it's easy to see if you build your identity uh, on your work and you fail why it's crushing. But what I want to make sure you see, particularly in our city, is if you build your identity on success at your work, it's a vain metric. There's always going to be some other hurdle out there again and again and again and again and again. And then you're going to be like, oh, everyone should just be like me. And everyone's going to be like, oh, please leave me alone. There's no way to build your life. There's no way to build your life. That's why I want you to see what Jesus does when he sees Zacchaeus, because he offers us a way out. He, when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, what everyone else is seen as a tax collector, when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, uh, look, look what he says in verse 5. He says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So when Jesus enters the scene and he sees Zacchaeus, he sees someone that's far more than just a tax collector. He sees someone far more than their job. Remember, you are more than your job. Jesus sees Zacchaeus. And he sees him as someone, he's like, man, I want a relationship with you. I want to stop and notice you. I want to spend time with you. I want to come to your house. I want to be your friend. Jesus sees something in Zacchaeus that no one else was seeing. 
Jesus doesn't define him by the work that he does. Jesus defines him by the image of God in him. And he says, Zacchaeus, there's so much more for your life. I want to come to your house and not because I want to help with my TurboTax. I want to build a relationship with you. Do you. I hope you see that. I hope you see that Jesus sees him as far more than how much he can make at his job. And then Jesus says to him uh, in verse 9, he says, today salvation has come to your house, Zacchaeus. Meaning, not just do I want to come and take a meal with you and be your friend, but I want to save you. I want to redeem you. I want to heal you. I want to transform you. I want to work in your life so that you grow like an oak of righteousness, like we say each week. That's what Jesus sees in him. Jesus sees in him. He says, the reason why I do this, verse 10, or verse 9, uh, he says, because this man too is a son of Abraham. So now Jesus is speaking about his identity. And that's language that we would say today, that Jesus sees him as a son or daughter of the king. He sees him as a person of faith, a person of value, a person of significance, and he's calling it out and he's stamping identity into him that's deeper and more life-giving than what Zacchaeus has known of just building his identity on his work. The good news uh, here in verse 10 is that Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, meaning what Jesus is doing in Zacchaeus' life is not just for somebody long ago, but it's what Jesus wants to do in your life and mine. That he wants to come into our lives in such a way that he says, you are more than the work that you do. I see so much more in you. You're a child of God. You're a son or daughter of the king. You are loved. I want a relationship with you. I want you to experience my grace. I want salvation to flow in and through you. This is good news, church. This is freeing. This is, I can breathe. This is amazing. It is freeing us from the toxicity of building our life on the work of our hands. Now look in verse eight, lest you miss this. Zacchaeus has this radical encounter with the grace of God. Has this unexpected, life-altering, life-transforming encounter with Jesus. And what's the first thing, the first place that that transformation works itself out in his life? It's in his job. It's in the way he goes about his nine to five. He says, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back four times the amount. Remember, his job was to oppress the poor. And now he's saying, as he encounters the grace of Jesus, as he encounters the love of Jesus, he begins to look at his work in a new way. He's saying, look, I'm actually, instead of oppressing the poor, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. Instead of leveraging my position to make my life great, I'm going to leverage what I have to make others great. Then he says, if I've wronged anybody, I'm going to go back and make it right. And not just make it right, but four times over. Wow. Talk about a significant transformation. And I love this example because we work in our church in so many different spaces, so many different industries, so many different jobs. And sometimes we think, okay, uh, honoring God in my work looks like X, Y, and Z for Zacchaeus. It looked like rethinking the way that he did work. It looked like working with integrity, working with value, working with purpose, working to honor God, working to bless others in the area of tax collecting. So as you encounter the grace of Jesus, 
I wonder what it looks like for you in your workplace to express the grace that you have received. Zacchaeus working this way uh, would have been very, very different from the way the rest of the tax collectors worked. It, it would have been turning this industry on its head for him to adopt these practices. And it flowed out of realizing that Jesus saw him as more than just a tax collector. Jesus saw him as more than his nine to five. Jesus saw identity in him that was deeper than just what Zacchaeus did. And Jesus sees you that way as well. Now, I realize that this uh, teaching so far, here on Sunday morning, in this calm place, with this natural light, we've been singing worship songs, work seems far away. Man, this is awesome. Oh, so good. I'm a child of God. Let's play that song again. You know, let's just sing it. And we'll just worship to our heart's content, and it'll be great. And then we'll go watch the Cowboys win, and it'll just be awesome, okay? I, I realize that. <laughs> what I realize also is that tomorrow morning or Tuesday afternoon or at your work trip where you have to go out of town this week, you're going to be in a very, very different environment where it gets a lot harder and things are a lot murkier or a lot hazier and you walk into that sales meeting on Monday and they're talking about quotas for the month and all of a sudden you feel the drive kicking in if I need to make that mark. Or you're a teacher and you go to teach uh, tomorrow and you walk in and one of your teachers on your team is already stressing out about the test at the end of the year and then all of a sudden anxiety begins to creep into you, and all of a sudden, you're trying, you're thinking, okay, I'm gonna, I, need to, I need to make sure they're here, I need to do this, my life depends on it, this is my work, I am, right? It's just so easy for us to drift back in. Uh, Joe, can you throw me that little mask? All right. If you have flown on an airplane, uh, you know that no matter what airplane you fly on, uh, they're going to go through at the beginning of the flight before you take off. They're going to say, hey, uh, in the event that something happens on this flight and the pressure changes, you're going to see these little masks kind of drop from the ceiling, supposedly. Uh, and then they're like, hey, you need, you, you, the oxygen is going to change. It's going to be really hard to breathe. And so you need to make sure that you put your mask on, right? And that's going to give you the oxygen that you need for when the pressure changes. So my question for you is how are we going to live from this place that we're more than our jobs, not just here on Sunday morning, but how are you going to live from that place and how am I going to live from that place when the pressure changes? When the work trip happens and you've gone and you've done the presentation and then people from work are wanting to go out and do these things that you have conviction against, but it's like, man, everybody's doing this. I'm far away. I'm tired. I owe myself just a little enjoyment, right? And the pressure changes. And then things that seemed unreasonable on Sunday morning start to seem very reasonable. Emotions that seem far from you as we talk about, I'm a child of God. I'm more than my nine to five. Seemed very, very real. It was like, oh, this is true. I got to act on it. What are we going to do? I want to share with you a story uh, of a man who has, has walked this way. 
And each week in this series, I'm trying to share testimonies of people from church history and from our own congregation, of people who have walked this out in the marketplace. And so I want to tell you the story of William Wilberforce. If you've been a part of our church for a while, you know he and George Washington Carver. I'm going to talk about them a lot because I think that they are incredible people and are very helpful for us as working people to learn from. So William Wilberforce uh, was used by God to bring about an end to the slave trade uh, in the British Empire. Uh, he lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s, born as an influential guy, got into politics before he knew Christ, has realized he's in politics for a couple years, and was like, man, this is just empty. And he has a spiritual awakening. He comes to know Jesus. Uh, he, he actually has a really influential mentor named John Newton, who you might know because John Newton wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And John Newton was a former slave trader who'd gotten saved. And now he becomes influential in Wilberforce's life. And Wilberforce's Jesus is capturing his heart. Wilberforce is like, man, maybe I should leave politics to go into ministry. And he's counseled by Newton and others, I believe, counseled not to leave his job to go into ministry but that God wanted to work through him at his job as a politician, that God wanted to move in his life and that God had a calling on his life. He had a calling to cultivate. And through those conversations, Wilberforce realized that God had put a call on his life to fight for and bring about the end of slavery in the British Empire. And so as, as a member of parliament, he brings a bill before parliament uh, I don't have the exact year, uh, but he brings it before Parliament uh, for the first time 20 years before it's actually passed. And for 20 years, he's bringing this bill over and over and over again to Parliament, and over and over and over, it's getting, it's getting voted down, it's not getting passed. The significant aspect of his life, this thing that he believes is God's divine call in his life, again and again and again and again and again. It doesn't come to pass. Man, 20 years. I persevered 20 minutes, and I'm like, man, I'm really persevering. He persevered 20 years. Think about that. You, you, you feel like the Lord spoke something to you. You're stepping out. It doesn't go like you thought in the first month. Ah, maybe the Lord didn't speak it to me. This would be 20 years of doing that. That's crazy the amount of perseverance. While he was persevering for this, he received many opportunities for political advancement that would have steered him away from what he believed his calling was. There would have been opportunities for success, opportunities for notoriety, opportunities to kind of climb you know, the political ladder in his generation to be a person where people knew you of fame and fortune. But he knew if he did that, he, he would sacrifice the call of God on his life. So he resisted the ambition. He resisted the opportunities. And he stayed faithful. And after 20 years, they brought an end to slavery in the British Empire. They were shut down. People wanted to kill him because he was messing with their business. And he just stayed at it. And they shut down slavery in the British Empire. And the world was forever changed. Now, that's a story you probably know. If you're familiar with Wilberforce, you've probably heard that story before. If not, I'd encourage you uh, to read a biography or go watch. There's a movie on Amazon about him. It's a great movie. But what you may not know is what was going on in his life that sustained him to be able to persevere that long. 
that sustained him not to leave his calling, but not to move for more prestige or more power, but to stay true to what God had called him to? What, what was it allowed him to, that he saw himself as more than his job? And that his value was more than just, man, this bill getting passed and me being successful. What were the things in his life that allowed him to, that, that allowed him to have the oxygen mask uh, come on when the pressure changed? I want to walk you through a few. The first one was a mentor. I told you that. Uh, John Newton was his mentor, famous uh, lover of Jesus. And his counsel and influence in Wilberforce's life helped Wilberforce stay the course. Second thing that I found significant about Wilberforce's life to be able to live out of his identity in Christ rather than his identity in his work was that he had these spiritual habits or spiritual practices that he incorporated in his life on a regular basis that helped him stay rooted in God. One of those for him was practicing Sabbath. This is so interesting. They say of Wilberforce, uh, he had some, uh, if, his, if, if his main sin struggle, if you will, his main sin struggle was selfish ambition. That he was one of those people, and you might be like that, that just kind of dream and long for fame and fortune and notoriety and success. In short, he wanted to make his worth his work. It says this is just something that he would drift to over and over and over again. And imagine for 20 years failing at the main thing you thought you were called to do, all the while having people saying, hey, come this way. You can be successful. And you've just got this internal fight. Anybody ever had an internal fight when it comes to their job? Oh, some of y'all need to work a little longer. This is something that we're all going to go through, right? He's got this internal fight. And there's so much pressure on him. And he said that for him, the practice of Sabbath, the practice of taking a day where he didn't think about work, where he didn't act on work, where he just took it to worship the Lord and to rest, that that day kept him grounded. I want want to read a quote from him talking about this day. He said, Blessed be to God for the day of rest and religious occupation, the Sabbath, wherein earthly things assume their true size. And ambition is stunted. So this practice that he had, this habit that he had, for when the pressure changed of saying, I'm going to take a day, a week, and I'm going to rest, and I'm going to seek the Lord, and I'm going to recuperate, that helped him. That earthly things came back to their true size. They stopped being so overinflated in his mind. And his ambition, his prideful ambition was stunted. He had other practices like daily scripture reading and prayer that were an important part of his life that helped him stay rooted in God. Interestingly enough, the, the pressure was so intense on his work that he had several uh, friends from work who ended up taking their own lives because of how intense the work pressure was. And Wilberforce would say, I think the reason I didn't go down that path was because I was practicing the Sabbath and seeking the Lord, and daily scripture, and those type of things, right? So he had a mentor. He had some habits in his life that helped him stay rooted in God. And then third thing, uh, he was a member. He was a part of a local church in a certain neighborhood in London, in the neighborhood called the Clapham District. He was a part of a local church there, like our church. And at that church, he had a group of friends, similar to the way we do life groups. They were called the Clapham Sect, or that's what we call them, you know, 150 years later. But essentially, it was a group of friends that was pulled together by one guy who was an investment banker 
who said, hey, I want to build a community here in our neighborhood of people who love Jesus and love one another and want to share life together. And everyone in this group had a pretty significant vocational calling. There were bankers, there were brewers, there were politicians, there were teachers. There were all kinds of people working in very professional jobs, very ordinary jobs. But they wanted to see Jesus work through their lives, and they wanted to live for more than just their nine to five. They wanted to live for him and his purposes and them. And so they committed to meeting together. They committed to living in community with one another. They all moved into that neighborhood of the incredibly big city of London. And though they had high-pressure jobs and influential jobs and things going on here and there, one of the priorities in their life was the community they shared with one another. And it was open. People would come and people would go. But there was a committed core that really sought to invest in one another. They were known for anyone could go into anyone's house to share a meal almost any evening of the week. Uh, that their families spent a lot of time together. That there was a place for Wilberforce where people didn't know him as the parliamentarian. They didn't know him as the politician. They just knew him as William. They just knew him as his friend. So when, when something is going great over here or something is going terrible with his work, he's got a place to go that's a pressure valve. His friends, they cared, but it wasn't the only thing they cared about in his life. They were committed to him. That type of community is what gave him the sustenance. One of the things that gave him the sustenance to stay rooted in Christ and to persevere in his work. Interestingly enough, uh, it was Hannah Moore, who I shared with you two weeks ago, uh, who was a member of this little group. She was the teacher that discovered a gift for writing. And out of her friendship in community with Wilberforce in this church, she's the one after 20 years that writes the, the poem that describes the slave condition that goes, gets published and goes viral in the nation. They put pressure on parliament and put it over the top. It came out of this little group, this little group of friends. That same group of friends established the first free colony in South Africa as a prophetic act to say slavery is going to be ended in Africa. Wow. They were committed to the evangelization of India and moral reform in Britain. So they had these significant callings to see God's kingdom advance in their generation. But there was a commitment to Jesus, a commitment to one another. And no matter how busy things were, how many opportunities they had out there, they said the center point of their life were their relationships with Jesus and with one another in that church. I just found that, man, so inspiring. So I've given you a question uh, last week, I gave you four questions to describe the way that you work. This week, I want to give you one question, kind of as take home, okay? Uh, whenever I would go see my mom in college, she would always send me home with food. I want to send you home with a little food today, spiritual food. And that's this. You heard about what Wilberforce needed to live this out and the ecosystem, if you will, that was in his life. So my question for you is, what is the spiritual ecosystem the habits, the relationships, et cetera, that you need to stay rooted in Christ in your workplace? What are the habits in your life, your marriage, your family, stay rooted in Christ in your workplace? And please hear me, it's not that the habits or the relationships are the secret sauce, but they're avenues that the Holy Spirit uses to help remind us of who God is and who we are and what our true calling is. And so it's so important that we think about what's the ecosystem that I'm building in my life that's going to help me live out this identity as a child of God and live out more than just my nine to five. 
It's out of that place for Zacchaeus, out of knowing that he was a child of God, that it inspired and informed the work of his hands. So you can take a picture of that question. You can write it down. I knew people took the four questions from last week, talked about them at lunch. Uh, Chew on this, if you will. I think this is so important to help us really live this out. And when the pressure changes, to stay rooted in Christ and rooted in our calling. I want to invite you to stand. As we close, uh, we're going to take communion to just remember Jesus and come to him uh, afresh today. But you might have heard this message, and you, you, you might be like, man, spiritual ecosystems a little beyond me. I, I don't know that I've ever met Jesus. I don't know that I know Jesus. I don't know that I could be like Zacchaeus where Jesus has come into my life, where, where his salvation has come into my house, so to speak. I, I want to encourage you that your starting point then is meeting Jesus and following Jesus. And he wants to have a relationship with you. He closes saying by saying that he, he's come to seek and to save the lost. That's not just Zacchaeus. That's for the whole planet. So there's an invitation to you today to come to know Jesus, to know his grace and to know his love. And in so doing to discover an identity that's so much deeper and so much more profound than just your nine to five to find truth and hope and healing and freedom and purpose in knowing Christ. So I want to ask everyone, if you just bow your heads for a moment, maybe this is for the first time that you said, I want to follow Jesus. Or maybe you've just been away a long time and you're trying to make your way back to God. You're trying, I want you to know that Jesus is running down the road pursuing you. He's noticing you and he wants to move in your life. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, if Jesus, the Lord of your life, or you're just trying to come back to him, I want to invite you to just make, stick your hand up in the air. I'm not going to call you up on stage. I'm not going to put your name on a billboard or anything like that. This is just an opportunity for you to respond to the Lord. If you'll put your hand up in the air, I'm going to pray with you. Praise God. Praise God. Let's pray together, church, and for everyone who had their hands raised. Jesus. Oh, you got to pray louder than that, guys. Jesus, you're amazing. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you see more in me than my success or failure at work. Thank you that you want to save me and heal me and redeem me. And I commit to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.